0: Even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void report prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors In Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Sergeant Josh Remillard, who served in the Army as a mortarman. Remillard deployed twice to Iraq in 2007 and 2010. During his first tour, he earned a combat infantryman's badge.
1: My name is Josh Remillard. Um, The highest rank I got to was sergeant and uh, I served in the army. And my first duty station uh, well, I served in the army as, as an infantryman in 2006, I went to my recruiter and I said, you know, sign me up. I want to be in the infantry. So he set me up as 11 x-ray. I got to Fort Benning and there I got, I got assigned to uh, 11 Charlie. So I was, I was a mortarman. I served eight years in the army and, and my first duty station was in Fort Stewart in Georgia. Uh, I did five years there, my initial enlistment, you know, while there I did two deployments, two combat tours to Iraq uh, one to one to Baghdad during the surge, and then uh, one to Mosul. I can't remember the name of the operation, but we were there, sort of helping the the units as they were leaving. Uh, as they, we were the backstop for units as they were leaving Iraq. I learned early that that life is a fight. You know, I um, I grew up in the foster care system, and you know, it wasn't until I was four that my my grandparents were able to adopt me. After that, I mean, even the jobs I held, I held were, were fights. I mean, I, I, worked as, I worked as a deckhand on a tugboat. I worked as a piercer in a tattoo shop and, and then as a, as a bouncer. And, you know, I, I guess, you know, I was sort of moping around town doing odd-and-end jobs. And I started paying attention to the news more. And I started noticing that the death toll was rising in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I just, I remember hating myself. Like, what, what am I doing at home? Like I'm, I'm just I'm just cheating the system. While these men and women are fighting overseas, I'm over here trying to get like a coupon for Hardee's to get like a cheaper hamburger or something, you know? So, I mean, I had like an eighth of a tank of gas in my car and I drove straight over to the recruiter and I said, look, man, I, I don't want you to sell me anything. I just want you to put me in the infantry. And if you can, put me in the fastest deploying unit uh, out of BASIC. He couldn't guarantee me the fastest deploying unit, but he was like, yeah, we'll do that for you. So, <laughs> so he signed me up for 11 X-ray and, you know, then I went off to bedding and, and uh, those combat tours. The 11 Charlie uh, MOS is a, uh, it is a brotherhood. And, uh, and yeah, <laughs> it is the stepchild to the 11 group. <laughs> um, I, I remember in basic training uh, after the shark attack, I don't remember what day it was, but they they it might have been actually during the shark attack day. They split us all up and they were, you know, they, they just walked, walked by and then pointed at you and said, you're 11, Charlie. And then those of us that were 11, Charlie's were like, what does that even mean? And then, you know, a few weeks later, uh, we're in our bay and, and our, our drill sergeant tells us what an 11, Charlie is. And you can just you can just hear the bottom drop out in the entire the entire bay. We're like, wait, hold on. We We, we all thought we were going to be on the front lines. And now we're, we're going to be launching stuff from like way behind. Like, come on, man, this, that's not fair. <laughs> so, so I, I think that sort of in that mindset, once the 11 Bravos were separated from the 11 Charlies, you know, we were sort of, we were always sort of determined to be better. It was sort of this little competition between us and the 11 Bravos to be better than the 11 Bravos. I think that was that sibling rivalry, if you will. You know, you carry around the mortar tube and, and they range from 11 or excuse me, uh, 60 millimeter mortars, which is something like it has like a little strap on it. you can carry it on your back to like an 80 millimeter mortar, which someone, you know, usually you assign someone that if you're a light infantry unit, you assign someone that and they carry that over the shoulders. And then, of course, you have your 120 millimeter mortar, which is something you have to put on the back of a trailer because that's essentially the uh, essentially the size of a um, or the diameter of, of a tank barrel. And you have some pretty big rounds in that you can't carry that uh, on your person. So when I got out of the, out of basic, they sent me to Third ID, Third Infantry Division, Second uh, Brigade Combat Team, 37 Cav. And so I was in a Cav unit, and so we we were in tracks. We were in the uh, the 113s from back in Vietnam. Everyone else got, and this this goes towards us being uh, the the stepchildren. Uh, everyone else got updated, upgraded vehicles. We still had Vietnam era vehicles but the uh, the vehicle was I guess you could say retrofitted with um, the back hatch being able to open up and also to be able to elevate our 120 millimeter mortar. And there's a lot of math that goes into that. you know like when you first set into place, you gotta run you have to run your your stakes out ahead of you because that's gonna be how you offset your um your offset your sight, your mortar site, and then you know eat like your fisters. Uh, 13 foxes will run out ahead of you or they'll be somewhere way out ahead of you, excuse me, Uh, or the infantry units or the scout units will be out ahead and they'll call in for fire with a a 13-digit grid. And then you have to plot that on your map or on your plotting board and determine what the elevation is that you're going to need, what kind of cheese charge we call it or a little explosive charge in the back of the round that you're going to need so that way you can send rounds downrange. Then, of course, there was different kind of tactics you can use. Uh, with firing mortars themselves. On our first point, we knew that we weren't going to fire mortars. So a lot of us were like, well, what the heck? What are we even doing here? You know, we we stopped off in, in, in Kuwait, and that's where we sort of acclimated and did a lot of our training. Uh, while there, my platoon was tasked with working as PSD, or personal security detachment, for a MIT team, a military and transition team. And the MIT teams, like, their job is... You have a collection of, uh, of of colonels, captains, sergeant majors, and so on that are essentially part of the uh, the S shops, and they work with their Iraqi Army counterparts and helping them take over the battle space after we leave. So our job was to be their their security detachment, and so we worked for a couple of months with special forces and Rangers on how to do uh, tactical convoy ops, uh, clearing rooms doing foot patrols with, uh, HVTs or VIPs, excuse me, not HVTs, but VIPs. Um, you know, and I'll tell you what, that was some absolutely incredible training that, that we had. Uh, now once we got into, uh, into country, I remember I was the gunner on the Humvee and obviously I was green. My driver was green. My squad leader had been to a couple of, uh, a couple of deployments before us. And, um, it was nighttime. We're rolling out to, I think it was War Eagle. And, and it, you know, we were all really tense rolling out the wire. And there's like this period of quiet. And then all of a sudden my, my uh, squalor goes boom in the mic and scared the crap out of both uh, my driver and myself. Um, and he goes, OK, now your chair has been busted. Now let's get back to work. <laughs> I was like, so that's that's fun. <laughs> but I think it was good. It, it got you over that initial nervousness. During that deployment, I my platoon didn't stay with the unit. My my platoon went all over Baghdad. Uh, we were in the old uh, Ministry of Defense building. We were just south of the Army base Rustamaya. Uh, there was a 9th Iraqi Army Division there, and we stayed there. And then we ended up in – towards the end of the uh, last few months of the deployment, we stayed in a, an Iraqi police compound. So we bounced – I mean, we went all over. We went through Sadr City. We went – Oh man, we went all over the place. I'll tell you what I, I really appreciated working with the Iraqi army, uh, the Ninth Iraqi Army Division. I mean, those those guys, they were squared away, and they were they were really determined to do a good job. Um, so it was definitely a pleasure working with them. The the Iraqi police, a lot of us were concerned working alongside them because a lot of them had been bought off uh, by Al Sadr and, and his insurgents, uh, and so they you know they were given free passage to you know, to other militants and and so on. And and so we just didn't, we never knew what was going to happen, you know, if we were working with them. And as a matter of fact, whenever we did convoys with them, you know, we interspersed them in our convoy. So it was like an American vehicle, then an Iraqi vehicle, an American vehicle and so on. Uh, So that way we knew that we had convoy security uh, and integrity. You know, there, there was uh, an, an Iraqi police officer that I worked with, uh, during the last uh, place that I was at and we called him Smiley because he didn't really have any teeth, but he was a good guy. I mean, I, we had these uh, army in- uh, translation books and the translation book would say a little bit, you know, would teach you how to speak Arabic, you know, and, and all that stuff. So I would go out to my, I go out to my guard sh- uh, shift with him and I would try to speak Arabic and then I would teach him English. You know, we'd go back and forth. I even bought him like a Michael Jackson CD cause he was a huge fan of Michael Jackson. And, you know, after a while, You know, you start to understand as you're talking with them, you start to understand their thinking and why they believe certain forces, you know, I guess why they believe that the American forces sometimes weren't good or so on, you know, because they were, they would see the constant changing of the guard. And they would see, they'd get a really good unit, then they'd get a really bad unit, then they'd get a really, and so there was just never this consistency with them. Um, So they just never knew who they could trust. And so they were just like, you know, I might as well. I mean, if if three, 7 Cav's not gonna be here, I might as well trust Al Sauter when he when he threatens me and my family to go do bad stuff, you know. But I think overall, when I was working with him, I I had a lot of I had a lot of confidence in the guys that I worked with. But I, I think it also it also came from the fact that I took the effort, I took the time to learn the language, to respect them. And in turn, they respected me. We were rolling with the MIT team, I don't remember which base we were rolling to, and we came over the bridge through the intersection, and I was the lead truck, uh, the lead truck gunner, and uh, the car off to the right of me, uh, about 50 meters or so, blew up. And I'll tell you what, seeing that explosion, like, I, I remember trying to, like, capture that, that experience afterwards, you know, because um, you see that quick flash of red, black smoke, you feel that instant heat. Um, and then, like, you know, immediately the, like you, you get the sense of like, oh crap, I got to protect myself. But then your, your training sort of kicks in, you know, you get that momentary pause, you need, then your training kicks in and, you know, I start scanning the, the, the area around me and I tell my driver, I was like, blow through the kill zone, man, get through it, get through it, get through it. So we blast through the kill zone. We, we drive through the kill zone and, uh, I'm pulling security. Uh, we're trying, you know, we're getting our, our green to green inside the truck, making sure everything's clear. And then I found out later on once every, once everyone else was good, there was no damage. We were all green to green. We all rolled to our uh, to our base because uh, the the guy that had blown up the car was in the car, and he sort of like melted out of the driver's seat. We get to our base, and uh, I, I find out once we're there that the that the Iraqis that we were rolling with did uh, they executed what's called like I guess like a death blossom, and they all had Dishkas or the Russian Russian 50 cals uh, on their trucks, and they were all pointing in different directions. And uh, they just opened up on everyone in the, in the, uh, in the intersection. I mean, they, they shot and killed pretty much everyone that was there. And and I was just like, that's insane. (laughs) Like, like, I I mean, I still, even after being blown up, I still had to get PID, uh, positive identification of the assailant, but these guys just opened up and killed everybody. And I was just like, that's, that's insane. There were, and there were several other times we had mortars walked in on us. And I think towards the end of the deployment, we had sort of become so desensitized by it. We went into the green zone, uh, waiting on one of our, waiting on our colonel to do a meeting and we're in the parking lot of the PX and mortar rounds start just walking in along the PX and we see everyone else start scattering for the, the mortar bunkers. And we're just sitting by the trucks going, "No, nah, that's not close enough. We're good. <laughs> and I remember when I got home, I was like, you know, we redeployed back stateside. I was like, man, that was really stupid. <laughs> that was really stupid of us. <laughs> Oh man. Yeah. So there was, there was some interesting times. I mean, if you were in, if you were in some units that experienced a lot of fighting, you know, or if you were in like a base where you had a lot of tall buildings around you and you were experiencing sniper shots all the time, like it starts to wear on you. And yeah, I mean, there were some pretty, pretty mean things that the soldiers would do. I think just because of that extra stress of, you know, you never know when the next bullet is going to come for you, you know? And then, you know, on, on my second deployment, we were in Mosul, and um, we were up in uh, I think it was like Diamondback and Merez, I think those were the two bases and and um, at the time, for that deployment, I ended up becoming the uh, the uh, de facto platoon sergeant for the mortars. i was I was just a sergeant, but then I you know my platoon sergeant and the other uh, my staff sergeant ended up getting sent to other units. So I, so I became the de facto platoon sergeant. So I had, uh, two mortar tracks, eight soldiers, uh, to be in charge of. And, um, you know, once we got there, we placed our mortar tracks in a certain spot or, you know, somewhere further on down the, down the base. And initially all we were doing was shooting up illumination rounds at night, I guess, to have a, a show of force, if you will. One day I get called into my commander's office and, uh, I'm in there with, along with his scout platoon leaders and the scout platoon leader is updating him on the past two weeks that they were out observing this island, I think it was. And you know, the company commander looks at me and says, all right, Remy, I want you to go and and, uh, and get your mortar team ready. We're going to drop some HE on that, on that island. And um, you know, I, I remember looking at him and you know, there was a moment there where, where I felt, I felt scared. Because I was like, well, I just I just heard him say because he when when the when the LT said when he was debriefing them, he was saying, look, there's nothing happening over there. There's like old people walking goats. There's like kids playing soccer. There's nothing going on. So when the commander said to me, let's go drop HE rounds, I just remember just just this internal panic. I couldn't believe what I was hearing, and I couldn't believe what I was told to do. And I knew that I'm supposed to go do it, but I like there was just something. Itching in the back of my brain. And I was like, I can't do that. Um, so, you know, I'm talking to the captain and I was like, sir, are we part of the same conversation? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, he's like, we're going to go, you know, as a show of force, you know, we're going to drop HE on it, whatever the case was. And and I and I, I looked at him and I said, sir, I can't do that. And he got like, it was like a momentary pause. And he and the LT are looking at me and he's like, Rimlar, that's an order. And I was like, yeah, but I mean, he just said that there's no one over there. Like there's kids over there. I was like, I I can't, I can't do that. You know, then he got really angry at me. And next thing I know, I have, you know, first sergeant, I got all these LTs and, you know, coming into the office and they're all, you know, they're all yelling at me. And uh, my commander is telling me, he's like, look, if you don't do this, you can go to Leavenworth. You can lose your rank. You can lose your pay. You can get kicked out of the army, dishonorably discharged. And I was like, look, bottom line, sir. I mean... I could do this all day. I just can't do that. I can't do it. So he was, he was really angry and he sent me back to my my barracks. And uh, you know, I told my my other guy that I was bunking with what had happened, and and uh he was trying to convince me too. He was like, Remy, he's like, just do it, man. He's like, you're just doing what you're told. It's it's not a big deal. And I was like, yeah, I know that, man, but because I know what's over there, because I know you know what the scout leader told me, I can't be a part of that. Uh, I can't have that blood on my hands. I can't go home and have that blood on my hands. You know, and so I can, I told my guys that that we're not going to do it. So I, I had to keep going back and forth to the commander's office every day because he would go up the chain and he would talk to another person, another person, another person, uh, you know, our, our squadron commander, battalion commander division, even all the way up to like, uh, general Odierno at the time. And at least that's what he told me. And, uh, You know, every time I would come back, he'd say, All right, they said that we're going to do it, you're going to do it. And I was just like, I can't do it. I'm not doing it. And then it finally, when it got up to, as he said, General Odierno, and it came back down, I guess General Odierno said, You know, don't worry about it. We can scrap the mission. We don't need it. And so after that point, you know, my company commander was like, All right, Remillard, well, you're lucky. You don't have to do this. Odierno says we don't have to. And throughout the rest of the unit, I think for a while, I was considered kind of a, a pariah almost because I didn't, I didn't do what the company commander wanted. Uh, so, I mean, I got put on odd details here and there, but I was like, look, I'm, I'm fine with that. I can go home at night knowing that I didn't, I didn't kill innocent people. So, you know, so yeah, <laughs> I definitely see how being out there on mission over and over again with a threat of death constantly looming over you can drive some people to do some pretty nasty things, but I never wanted to be that kind of soldier. I wanted to do something honorable while I was in the military. I ended up telling my guys uh, because I mean it was sort of the buzz around the the troop that I had said no. I mean I told the other I told the uh, the team leads the squad leaders that we weren't going to do it. And uh, once the buzz came back to me, I think I think at some point I probably even brought my guys into a, a room, all my guys into a room, and, and and it was weird before I did that. Like I just. I remember sitting in my room thinking to myself like what am I doing? <laughs> like this is this is crazy that I'm I'm in this position. And I guess I you know I just I fully took it on and and I was like, you know, I I told them that yeah, I'm I'm going to say no every time. I'm not going to send us out there to go shoot HE rounds. Cuz a leader has to take responsibility for their actions. That's what the army tells you. You can always delegate tasks, but you can never delegate responsibility. So the blood was always going to be on my hands. But I also didn't want my guys to participate in something like that. Having the intel that we had, having the PID, having the positive identification, I just, I didn't want my guys to have to live with that. I didn't want them to have to be a part of that. And I mean, I I didn't get much pushback from my guys. I, I told them, I was like, go ahead, you know, uh, talk freely. You know? Uh, you know, let me know what you guys think. Ultimately, I didn't want them to be a part of it. And I think that I didn't receive a whole lot of pushback either from it. You know, when I got out of the army, it was, there was some dark times. There was some dark times for me because I didn't, I didn't have a mission. I didn't have a purpose, but I had all this PTSD. What do I do? And then that's when I found Team Rubicon. And I saw what they were all about. You know, veterans, helping veterans, helping veterans respond to to natural disasters. I think the slogan is what? Kicking natural disasters in the face or something like that. And they, um, they gave me a mission. They gave me a mission to continue helping out my community and my country. And I'll tell you what, you know, I I got my wildland firefighter certification with them. I got my damage assessment certification from them. And when I went down to Florida after Hurricane Michael to help to help down there, you know, they after the missions are up, they raise the beer flag. Everyone's back on post, raise the beer flag. We all grab a couple of beers and we we sort of sit around the fire and we we chat. And uh, nothing is more cathartic than being able to be there for other veterans who have experienced some hard you know, experiences and is being that person that they can lean on because they know that you've, you understand it.
0: With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: If I hear an explosion or, you know, some sort of pop or, you know, a 4th of July, like I still twitch a little bit. Um, and, you know, whenever whenever I'm driving down the road, if I see a sewer lid, you know, I try to split the car. I try to put it in the middle of the car as I'm driving over it because the insurgents would put pressure plates underneath sewer lids and they would put 500 pound bombs underneath those sewer lids. And then so if a vehicle goes over it, you know, you, you end up losing your entire crew and then, you know, there was a period of time too whenever I would drive under overpasses. Like I'd sort of start on one side of the overpass and then go to the other side because again, insurgents would stand on bridges and then they would drop armor piercing, now uh, grenades from the top of those bridges down onto the gunners. And then of, of course, one of the last things that we had heard about is that on our first appointment, what the insurgents were doing is they were taking the big, tall jersey barrier or T-barriers and they were putting like heat sensors or, or what have you, in on one and then they were attaching it to an IED like an EFP on the ground somewhere else uh for the purpose of of killing the gunners and so there's sort of that I guess weariness uh, and and also like I mean when I, whenever I go into like restaurants and stuff I always try to put my back against the wall so I can see who's coming in I have I guess you could say a little bit of uh, of PTSD from all that still to this day Uh but I mean I certainly didn't get the worst of it, like other guys did. Um, One of the things I always try to tell veterans is like, look, I know it's scary to talk about, but the more that you talk about it, the less of a mystery it becomes. The more normalized it becomes, your experiences, the more normalized it becomes. Even if no one understands what you've gone through, the more that you talk about it, it doesn't have that effect on you as it used to. You know, I'm always trying to encourage people to talk about it as much as they can, uh, as much as they're comfortable doing it, because... Getting through that, it will make your life a whole lot easier as you're dealing with it. I think maybe from all the movies that we see where, where there's this fetishization of, of people always being this, the lone guy defending democracy, defending our country or whatever, standing on the hill triumphant. You know, a lot of these people like Madison Cawthorn, they sort of view themselves as that guy and they they nothing's more exciting for them. But then they they don't understand the reality that comes with killing another human being. People who cosplay, you know, attacking our government, engaging in a second civil war. I find it disgusting and I find it very detached Um, because clearly I imagine that most of these people have never had to put another human being at the end of their gun sights, their knife sights. They've never had to pull a trigger on another person. It's not easy, it's not easy. You know, I was, I was really excited to join the military because I felt like it was my job and I wanted to be in the fight. I knew what the infantry was all about. Well, at least generally before I got in. But before my first deployment, knowing what I was probably going to have to do, you know, I spent a good month, maybe two, any moment that I had by myself, talking to myself and getting myself in the headspace, understanding that. You know, trying to picture what it would look like to have to put another person in my in my knife sight, and then pull the trigger on that human being, because the reality is that when you pull that trigger, when you fire that round into another human being, you are you're not prepared for what's going to happen. I had heard reports that day that people were trying to people were trying to break into the Capitol with the express intent of finding Nancy Pelosi and Mike Pence and then hanging them outside. Like that's just. Sure, you know, I guess like in the back rooms when you're talking it up with your buds, like it sounds like a really cool romantic idea of saving your democracy, stopping the steal. But then just realize that you're taking another human life and you're going to you're gonna pull the trigger on it. You're going to hit that person with a baseball bat. You're going to string them up by a noose. That's not, you know, when I was over there, th- there was one time I was doing a patrol, a foot patrol through a neighborhood. And this lady brought, she brought her kid out to us. Uh, and she spoke to us because the kid needed some medical aid or something like that. And our you know our medic gave her that aid. And later on, we found out that al-Sadr had this sort of kill order out that if anyone came out and interacted with the Americans, they were dead. They were going to kill them. That was just unbelievable to me. It was just unbelievable to me. And then, you know, again, you know, I had an, another— experience where I was, I was helping out a convoy and it was a bunch of trucks bringing T barriers to help wall off a neighborhood or something like that. And the truck was trying to make its way into a tight turn. And I was the one exposed, protecting its backside on the highway. And I see a car barreling down on us. I went through the the SOP the or the ROE, excuse me, the rules of engagement. You know, we're supposed to shove, shout, show and shoot. That's what we're supposed to do before we ever pull the trigger on anybody. And uh, so I see him coming down, the, coming down the road, and I'm waving at him, and uh, so I'm showing him, and you know I put my finger on the trigger, I lean into the buttstock, I take the rounds out, I charge it, I lay it down, I charge the weapon, and I'm leaning into it, and I'm still yelling at this guy, and I'm, I'm getting ready to pull the trigger, and then probably 100 meters from me, he slams on the brakes, comes to a skid, and I look inside, it and it's his pregnant wife and his kid in the back of the car. And I remember just being so pissed at the fact that I was about to kill this man and his entire family that the the way to release it was for me to throw a water bottle at a, a bottle at his car. Like, what are you doing, man? Like, I'm like, what? Why did it take you so long to stop? I didn't want to have to kill you, but I was going to. That was going to be the next step. I guess what I'm saying is like, sure, I suppose civil war might be romantic to some people because you're going to be in this fight against an enemy, a perceived enemy. But killing other human beings isn't fun. It's not romantic. It's not like the movies.
0: That was Sergeant Josh Remillard. To learn more about Josh, listen to his interview on Burn the Boats. The link is in the show description. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars, Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Ruhl-Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words.